This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash be here now. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. Hello, I'm Chris Bascianelli, and this is a guest podcast on the Be Here Now Network I am so grateful to be here with Daryl Davis, an incredible blues and R&B musician. He's an activist, an author. He's played on stage for over 30 years with Chuck Berry, with B.B. King, with Jerry Lee Lewis, and perhaps most notably, Daryl Davis has single-handedly, not through force, not through anger, but through wisdom and compassion, converted, dare I say, hundreds of members of the KKK and had them renounce their way of life and come to see a way of compassion. Daryl, thank you so much for being here today, brother. Thank you, Chris. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to bring me onto your, onto your podcast. I think we got to start. Uh, you know, I wasn't going to share this, but I have to because it's on my mind now. I had a dream that you and I, this is not a joke, we're playing with the Grateful Dead on stage to a sold-out show, which is not possible in COVID, but we were, and guess what song we were playing? Johnny Be Good. Johnny Be Good. Johnny Be Good. <laughs> yeah, I love that song. I also like their song, Truckin', and I like their version of Johnny Be Good. I've not played with the Grateful Dead as a group. I, I have sat in with, uh, with uh, Bob Weir and also with Mickey Hart. Wow. Well, you know, Bob Weir is uh, heavily involved with the Seva Foundation, and Ram Dass, who was part of this network, uh, was also involved with the Seva Foundation, incredible organization, nonprofit. So you're connected already. Well, I'd love to be connected even more so. Daryl, I think we got to start from the top. What's your favorite song? Hit us with that. My favorite song of all time is Johnny Be Good. Why is Chuck that? Berry. Uh, I mean, it is the epitome of rock and roll. It's, it's a bio about somebody who started out, you know, poor and hopefully one day his name will be up in lights saying, Johnny, be good tonight. It just goes through the whole, you know, uh, history of a, of, of, a, of a rock and roll star. I love it. Do you relate to that message? Uh, I do. I do. I mean, I, you know, I didn't grow up 
you know, poor, you know, in, in a log cabin and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, which, which the song depicts and neither did Chuck Berry, by the way. But uh, I do relate to it. You know, I think it's every, every uh, musician's dream, you know, to have their name up in lights one day and, and be encouraged and people come from miles around to see them when the sun goes down <laughs> and all that kind of thing. Sure. It's the, uh, I think it's every musician's autobiography. You know, I have to ask your work with the KKK and and speaking with with groups that are founded on hate and having people essentially give up their way of life. Was that at all influenced by your decades of onstage work and I'm sure offstage connection with Chuck Berry, BB King, those other wonderful musicians? Sure, I mean that, that you know that's definitely had an impact upon it, and music itself has an impact upon it because I mean as a as a band leader, you know, I have my own band as well. And as a band leader, you know, my job is to bring harmony to the voices on my stage, whether they are the instrumental voices of the piano, bass, drums, guitar, saxophone, or whatever else, or the uh, vocal voices. I want harmony there. The only time that I want dissonance in my music is when I intentionally inject it into the music for, you know, for effect. You know, for, to, to create a certain feel or a certain effect, uh, shock or sadness or you know whatever. If uh, if there's dissonance that just happens randomly, it's because somebody hit a bad note, whether they sang flat or sharp or played out of tune, you know, and that's not acceptable. It's a, it's an assault on the ear. But when you do that uh, intentionally for effect, you know that's okay. So as a band leader, my job is to bring harmony amongst the voices on my stage. So naturally, when the gig is over and I step off the stage and I'm, you know, going through society, wherever I'm going, I want harmony around me. I want, I want to get along with people. I want people to get along with me. I don't want, you know, strife and animosity and all that kind of thing. So, yes, music has played a, a big role on, on, my, on my endeavors in that direction. And I'd also like to say that, you know, I, I don't really convert anybody. You know, you know the media says... You know, black musician converts X number, 200, you know, Klansmen or whatever. No, I, I did not convert even one of them. I am the impetus for sure for over 200, um, you know, white supremacists, be them Klan or neo-Nazi or just individuals uh, to, to renounce that ideology. But, uh, you know, they convert themselves. I give them the reason to think about things. I don't try to tell them what to think and tell them that they're wrong. I just give them perspectives and show them how to think and then they figure it out. They say, oh, hmm, maybe I need to do this. You know, and they go a different way. Because it's always stronger when someone comes to their own conclusion, you know, hey, I, I need, I need to, you know, to do something rather than you try to compel them to do it. You know, that doesn't last so long. I'm here with Daryl Davis, who has not converted, but who has had conversations with many, many, many KKK members. And as a result, over 200 members of white supremacist groups have renounced their way of life. Daryl, how would you classify your work? What is the philosophy of Daryl Davis? You're not convincing people. You're not yelling at them that their views are wrong, that they have to change. What are you doing? I'm being a rock and roll race reconciliator. A rock and roll race reconciliator. Yes. So how do you do it? What's your philosophy? My philosophy is dialogue. A missed opportunity for dialogue is a missed opportunity for conflict resolution. 
you know? And when you talk with somebody, even, I mean, it doesn't matter what hot topic it is. Uh, and we, we can even take race off the table. So let's say abortion, uh, nuclear weapons, global warming, the war in the Middle East, the current presidency and, and the election. Uh, those are hot topics. You're on one side, somebody else is on the other side. So you start off apart as adversaries. But, you know, you spend five minutes talking with your worst enemy, you're going to find something in common. And that gap begins to close, that chasm closes. You continue the conversation, you find even more in common. And, and so now you've gone from adversarial to a relationship and now heading towards a friendship. You don't have to agree on everything, but you're, you're having a friendly relationship. And by the time you get there, you have found more in common than you have in contrast. And the trivial things that you have in contrast, such as skin color, or whether you worship at a church, a mosque, a synagogue, or a temple, begin to matter less and less. So conversation is definitely the key. And, you know, speaking of music, let's say, uh, for example, let's say, you know, um, I have the weekend off and we're not on lockdown. And so I want to go out dancing. It's time for me to be entertained and me being the entertainment. So there's a club down the street and uh, I head on down there Friday night. I want to do some dancing and they have music there, whether it's a DJ or a live band and the dance floor is full and there's a song playing that I like. I want to dance. First thing I do is I'm going to, you know, look around the club and see if I see a single lady who's unattached. And I, I spot one sitting at the bar and she's, you know, patting her hand on the bar in time to whatever song is playing. So obviously she likes that song. So I don't know her. I'm going to walk over to her and say, hey, you know, you want to dance? And she says, yeah. So she pops off her bar stool and the two of us go out onto the dance floor and we're dancing together. If it's a slow song, we're wrapped around each other and turning slowly around on the floor. If it's a fast song, you know, we're apart, shaking or whatever. Now, I don't even know this woman. But when the song is over, being the gentleman that I'm supposed to be, I escort her back to her seat at the bar and say, hey, thanks for the dance. My name's Daryl Davis. And she says what her name is. And, she's, and I say, so, you know, what do you do? And she says, I'm, I'm vice president for uh, Microsoft uh, East Coast Marketing. Whoa. You know, she's, <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's making, you know, half a million dollars a year or something. And um, she says, you know, so what do you do, Daryl? And I say, uh, I'm a cashier at, uh, at McDonald's. <laughs> you know, so I'm, what am I making? You know, what, maybe nine, $10,000 a year or something. Where would two people that far apart come this close with their arms wrapped around each other and they don't even know each other? Music. Music brings people together. Have you used music or has music come up as a way to bridge the gap with white supremacists? Have you been surprised? Has music surprised you in terms of the connection it has brought? Absolutely. You know, and I think, you know, we all have heard uh, the, the phrase, you know, music soothes the savage beast. Uh, I, I, I have seen that in action. Uh, one, not, not the first, but one of the, well, he was the first Klansman that I got along with. Mm -hmm. uh, I was playing in a bar in Frederick, Maryland, an all-white bar called the Silver Dollar Lounge. And the Silver Dollar Lounge, when I say all-white, I do not mean that there were signs saying no, no blacks or anything like that. You know, blacks could go in, but they, they did not go in 
of their own volition. You know, uh, it was a bad choice because they were not welcome there. And when you go somewhere and you're not welcome and alcohol is being served, that is not a good combination to be in. So here I was in the Silver Dollar Lounge, the only black person in there. I was playing in a, in a half bluegrass, half country band, and the only black person in the band as well. And after the first set, I was walking to the band table, and I felt a gentleman come up behind me and put his arm around my shoulder. Now, I don't know anybody in this joint. You know, I see the whole band in front of me, so it wasn't one of them. I turn around to see who's touching me. I was this white guy, uh, maybe 15 or so years older than me, and he's all excited. He says, man, I sure like your all's music. I said, thank you. And I shook his hand, and he says, I've seen this here band before, but I ain't never seen you before. Where'd you come from? It was like my first gig there. And the band had played, you know, they were established in the area, and they played there many times. And I said, well, you know, I just joined the band, you know, a couple of months ago. But yes, you know, they have played here before, but I wasn't with them. He goes, man, you know, this is the first time I ever heard a black man play piano like, like, like Jerry Lee Lewis. I sure like your piano playing. Now, I was not offended by any means, but I was rather surprised, if you will, that this, that this gentleman uh, who is at least a decade and a half older than me did not know the black origin of Jerry Lee Lewis's piano playing style. And I proceeded to tell him that he got it from the same place I did, from black blues and boogie-woogie piano players. That's where rock and roll, rockabilly came from. Oh, no, 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 Jerry Lee invented that. I ain't never heard no black man play piano like that, except for you. So I'm thinking, okay, well, this guy never saw Little Richard or Fancy Domino, you know, same style. And uh, I said, look, man, I said, I know Jerry Lee Lewis. He's a very good friend of mine. He's told me himself where he learned how to play. The guy didn't buy that either. Right. And he, but he was fascinated with me enough. I guess I was a novelty that he wanted to bring me back to his table and buy me a drink. Now, I don't drink alcohol, but I agreed to go back to his table with him. And I had a cranberry juice. He paid the uh, waitress for, the, uh, for, for my drink. He took his glass and he like clinked my glass and he cheered me. And then he says, you know, this is the first time I ever sat down and had a drink with a black man. And now I'm totally mystified because at that point in time, I had sat down with literally thousands of white people and had a meal, a beverage, a conversation. And I could not fathom in my mind how this guy who's been on this earth 15 years longer than me had never sat down with a black guy. And I know that there are black people in Frederick, Maryland. I know that for a fact, because I've seen them. So how did he somehow miss them all these years? And innocently, I asked him why. At first, he didn't answer me. He stared down at the tabletop. Mm. And I asked him again. And his buddy sitting next to him elbowed him and said, tell him, tell him, tell him. I said, tell me. Because now I'm like, really, what's going on here? And the guy looks at me just as plain as day. And he says, I'm a member of the Ku Klux Klan. I burst out laughing because I thought the dude was, was joking me. I know a lot about the Klan. I know a whole lot about the Klan. So, and the Klan does, you know, does not just come up and embrace black people and want to buy them a drink and hang out. It doesn't work that way. That's why they're in the Klan. So, uh, you know, I figured, you know, this guy's jerking me around. He figured I was jerking him around about Jerry Lee. So he's going to jerk me around with something. And so I'm, I'm going along with the joke laughing. He goes inside his pocket, pulls out his wallet, flips through it, and hands me his clan membership card. I took this thing, I look at it, and I, whoa. I recognize the Ku Klux Klan insignia, 
which is a red circle with a white cross and a red blood drop in the center of the cross. It's called a mayok or a uh, blood drop emblem, either name. And I, I said, I'm like, yeah, man, this thing is for real. So I stopped laughing and I gave it back to him. And we talked about the plan and some other things. And long story short, we ended up becoming very good friends. And, and he would eventually, you know, leave the clan. He would leave the clan. Yes, he would leave the clan as a result of my friendship. Yeah. So, you know, music. I mean, you know, <laughs> you know, you, you go out to, to, a, to dance with somebody, you know, there are people there that you don't know. Everybody likes music, whether you're uh, a computer software person, hardware person, the person who paints the W line down the street or picks up your, your garbage Saturday morning or as a school teacher, or a Klansman, or a neo-Nazi, or whatever. Everybody likes music. And um, they, they come to the same places. And music was what got that Klansman out of his chair, at his table, from his drink, to come up and approach me. You and I can not- tell you, I can tell you for sure, if I had gone in there as a non-musician, i just come into that particular bar to dance, I would have had to fight my way out. I'll guarantee you that. Literally. I've seen that. Literally. I, I, I will guarantee you that. Um, just a quick story. The same bar. A a lady friend of mine, not not a romantic interest, just just a you know, just a good friend of mine. Uh, she would go there. She was the aunt of of uh, of the drummer in uh, in the country band which I played. And so I had to play a surprise birthday party right down the road from this club one night. Now, this lady uh, we'll just call her Sandra. Uh, Sandra was a very attractive lady. And she would go to the, to the Silver Dollar Lounge every weekend, every weekend with her girlfriend. Uh, and, and she loved to dance. She loved music. She wasn't there to pick up men or anything like that. Just strictly dance, have a good time, you know. And, 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 they, and she and her girlfriend liked to drink. So they, the, the lounge was in the bottom of this motel. And so they would get a room together upstairs so that way they wouldn't have to drive you know an hour back home drunk or whatever right so you know good good precaution and they they never went out with anybody they were always getting offers to go out to breakfast and go here and go there they went there strictly to dance and then they'd go upstairs and and go to bed and go home the next day so anyway um you know everybody loved dancing with sandy and um i i had a gig right down the street from there surprise birthday party for somebody. So I came up early and I went to go hang out at the Silver Dollar Lounge while, um, you know, I, before it's time for me to go to the gig. And I had my guitar uh, on the back seat of the car and my keyboard in the trunk. So I went in and I asked Sandy, I saw her in there, I said, hey, you know, could, could you put this uh, guitar, my guitar in, in your room until it's time for me to go? I don't want to leave it out there on the back seat of my car. Somebody smashed the window and you know, break in. She goes, yeah, yeah, sure, but, you, know, you know, go get it. So I went out and got the guitar. And uh, so Sandy and I walk to the back of the club where the elevator is. We go upstairs and she opens the door. I threw the guitar on her bed and we come back downstairs all within three or four minutes. Do you know she got exiled out of that club? Why? Because pe- people, people saw this white woman walk with a black man to the elevator and go upstairs. And so, you know, minds tend to wander and, and they jump to conclusions. And two things happened. 
believe it or not, half the men in there began hitting on her, figuring, hey, you know, if you'll do a N-word, you'll do me. And the other half wanted nothing more to do with her. You know, her favorite dance partners would no longer dance with her. What? So she was, yeah, because she had defiled herself by taking me to her bedroom. What what year was this, if you don't mind? 19, me yeah, 1983. 1983, Frederick, and Maryland. Fred, Frederick, Maryland. Yes, sir. Well, that inspires within me another question. It's really the root question, which is, where did you find the courage to first begin speaking with members of the KKK, white supremacist groups? How did you not fear for your life? Well, Chris, you know, for, for, I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. It truly was not courage as much as it was curiosity. And... I, you know, I, I say that not because I, I think that I'm, you know, invincible and, and uh, you know, and no one can hurt me or anything like that. You have to understand my, my growing up years, my formative years. My, my parents were in the U.S. Foreign Service. And so I, I grew up as an American embassy brat, living all over the world. Starting in 1961, we began traveling. And I was at the age of three. I'm 62 years old now. So at the age of three... You know, I went to Africa, I went to Europe, went all over the world. I lived in Africa for 10 years. I lived in Europe. I visited South America and Asia. Um, and later I would visit Australia. So between, you know, and while I was overseas going to school, my first exposure to school was overseas. At age three, you know, you're not in school. You get assigned to a country for two years. So at age five, I'm in kindergarten. And uh, I mean, you know, my classmates were from Nigeria, Italy, France, Germany, Japan, Russia. Anybody who had an embassy in those countries, all of their children went to the same school. My classroom looked like a United Nations of little kids. <laughs> that, that's what it was. It was beautiful. That was you know? normal. That was, was your norm. norm. That was my norm. That was your norm. Yes, that was my norm. I, you know, I didn't know anything different. But, you know, even though Brown versus the Board of Education uh, desegregated schools in this country, the Supreme Court, in 1954, four years before I was born. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over years. You know, it's not like a light switch. You know, you have to assimilate and all this kind of stuff over time. You know, well into the 60s, even the 70s, some schools were still segregated just by zoning and whatever else in neighborhoods. So, uh, you know, you're a lot younger than I am, but I, you know, I remember black and white TV. And it was like really exciting going from black and white to color TV. It's like, wow, you know, a whole new dimension. It was kind of, of a reverse thing when I would come home from overseas to, to my schools here. I went from technicolor to black and white, you know, because there wasn't that kind of diversity in my classroom. Um, so I was literally, if you will, I was literally living like 10 years into the future when I was overseas because that multicultural scenario, or as you call the norm, had yet to come to my own country. I was already prepared for it 10 years before my peers here. So I was literally living in the future. And I just view different people as, as different cultures because I was exposed to so many differences between traveling with my, my parents as a child combined with my adulthood travels now as a professional musician 
and lecturer. I've been in a total of 57 different countries on six continents. And so I've been exposed to literally a multitude of uh, ethnicities, colors of skin, languages, uh, cultures, religions, and all of that has helped shape me. And I can tell you something, Chris, no matter how far I go from this country, our country, whether it's right next door to Canada or Mexico or halfway around the planet, and no matter how many different kinds of people I see and I encounter, when I get home, I conclude one thing. And that one thing is we are all human beings. And as such, we all want the same basic five things in our lives. We want to be loved. We want to be respected. We want to be heard. We want to be treated fairly. And we want the same thing for our family as anybody else wants for their family. And if we can keep those five core values in mind when we're dealing with people who, who may look like us or who may not even look like us, we can navigate society a lot better. So I just considered white supremacy simply another society. And I would employ those five things. And sure enough, it helped them see that, hey, this guy is really no different than us. It, you know, they didn't see it like overnight, like a light switch. No, you know, it, popped. It, it came over time. It came over time. Daryl, what would you say is the most surprising story in your work with the KKK? What's one story of sort of conversion, not that you were trying to convert anyone. Sure. What's one story of a KKK member renouncing their way of life that really surprised you? Well, I've had a lot of them. Uh, but first of all, just to listen, when I set out to, to sit down and talk with these people, it was not for the purpose of converting them or changing their mind or, or, or bettering them, it, none of that was, was on the forefront of my mind. All I wanted from them was to know, because I, I had a racist experience when I was a little kid at, at age 10 back here home in the States. Well, people threw rocks at me uh, when I was marching with an all-white uh, parade. And um, in the Cub Scouts, right? In the Cub Scouts, right. That's and when you discovered what racism was. That's when I, yeah, that was my first uh, you know, touch of racism. And I, I didn't understand it. My parents had to explain it to me. And even then I didn't understand it. And the reason why I didn't understand it was, yeah, you know, I have a lot of white friends. And so I could not, my 10 year old brain could not, you know, get, wrap itself around the idea that those people didn't like me because of the color of my skin. I think it would be okay, Daryl, if we went there. And even if, we've, even if we tell it again, uh, my question for you is, what is the moment when you first discovered what racism was in your life? Uh, the moment was, it was a it was a PTSD moment because when it happened, uh, when I was attacked with uh, rocks and bottles, racism did not cross my mind. I just thought somebody didn't like the scouts. I was marching with the, with the scouts and I was the only black scout in the, in the uh, parade and I was the only one getting hit. Tell uh, us I, about that story. What happened? Well, um, we had a, a, a parade with uh, the Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, Girl Scouts, Brownies, 4-H Club, and some other organizations. And I was the only black participant, 1968. And uh, people were cheering us and waving and carrying on. Everything was good. And we got just to one point in, the, in this parade where off to my right, I began getting hit 
with our bottles and rocks and street debris, soda pop cans, by just a small group of spectators, a couple of kids, maybe a year or two older than me, and a couple of adults. And I didn't understand that. I thought, you know, these people over here, you know, they must not, you know, must not like this, you know, the scouts. And maybe they're jealous. Maybe, you know, I didn't know what the reason was. It wasn't until my den mother, cub master, troop leader, all came running to where I was, and they covered me with their bodies. And these were white uh, scout leaders, adults. And they were escorting me out of the danger. And I kept saying, well, wh why are they hitting me? Why are they hitting me? I didn't do anything. And all they would do is shush me and rush me along. And they never answered my question. So, you know, I, again, I, you know, I didn't know why this was happening. It was a mystery. And at the end of the parade, you know, when it was all over, I went home. And uh, my parents, who were not uh, in attendance, they thought I'd fallen down. And they said, you know, how do you fall down and get all scraped up? And they're like cleaning me up and washing me up, putting Band-Aids on me. And I told them what had happened. And for the first time in my life, they sat me down and explained to me what racism was. At the age of 10, believe it or not, I had never heard the word racism. It did not exist in my world. I was around people from all over the world. So why would I know anything about racism? Everybody treated me fine. So, you know, this was my first encounter. And um, I did not believe my parents. My parents had never lied to me. But on this day when they were telling me about this thing called racism, I thought they were lying. I, uh, I, I just did not believe them. And it wasn't until a month and a half or so later, that same year, 1968, on April the 4th, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And every major city in the United States burned to the ground, just like we saw a few months ago in the wake of the George Floyd lynching. I saw it in 1968. And then I realized this phenomenon that I'd learned about just a couple months prior, this thing called racism, it really does exist. So now I, I, I accepted its existence, but I did not understand why. Why are people racist? You know, and I formed a question in my mind at that age, which was, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And for the next 52 years, I've been looking for the answer to that question. So now to get to your question, where did that curiosity, courage thing come from? It's because I knew people could, could get along. I, I lived that way. So I was curious, you know, why do my own fellow countrymen um, ha have something against me? And they're not even as white as the Europeans I went to school with, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. who got along with me just fine. Um, so, you know, who better to go to than someone who would go so far as to join an organization that now has a 155-year history of hating people who do not look like them and who do not believe as they believe. So I began seeking out uh, plan members, you know, and to, to sit down and interview them and find out, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? So that's where that came from. And I'd already had experience, you know, all my life dealing with people who, 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 who were different than, my, you know, than I was from foreign countries and foreign religions and things like that. I got along fine. So why wouldn't I get along fine with a, with a white supremacist in my own country? Daryl, when your parents sat you down when you were 10 years old and they explained what racism was, how did they explain it? And how do you define racism today? Okay. 
you know, they let me know that there are some people, you know, they didn't say all white people or all this and all that. You know, um, my parents were very good about that. You know, they let me know that there, there are just some people who, uh, who, who don't believe that, uh, that people who look like us are as good as they are. And, and they, you know, they, they strike out against them. Um, and, you know, and I just could not understand that because I knew so many white people who looked just like the ones who were throwing things at me. So I, and I'm trying to, to justify that, but I was having like a cognitive dissonance. And, you know, they said, you know, you can't, you know, you can't judge somebody like that. They're just certain people on, on all sides, you know, who, who may not like you because of this or that or the other, the color of your skin or, you know, or, or religion, things like that. And I, I had never experienced that. Um, so I just didn't believe them. I did not believe them until I saw the fires and the destruction, you know, a month and a half, two months later. Um, and then I realized, man, you know, this thing you know, really does exist. And then that fall of uh, 1968, we went back overseas on another assignment and I was around normalcy again, people from all, of, all over the world. But every time I would come home, I would have an experience, you know, this, this racial thing. Right. And I just had to, had to get to the bottom of it. I just did not understand. How do you define racism, Daryl? I define racism as uh, the, the thinking that your skin color uh, gives you superiority over someone of a different skin color. That, that's my definition of racism. Um, but, you know, racism in itself, by definition, doesn't really exist. Because we all are one race. There is no black race, white race, Hispanic race, Asian race, et cetera. There is the human race. Right. You know, race is a man-made construct, as I'm sure you know. Uh, but, you know, for purposes of everybody else, you know, they, they want to refer to the black race, the white race, et cetera. So there is only one race. But um, it's thinking that, that the color of your skin defines your race and that your race is better than someone of another color. I won't say a lesser color because right. you know, colors are colors. Yeah. Daryl, the moment when I first fell in love with you and your work and your story was when I was watching the documentary which features you. It's called Accidental Courtesy. I highly recommend it to everyone listening. Incredible documentary. And for me, I'm going to give a spoiler alert. For me, the most powerful moment came at the end of the film. When you're sitting down with your friend, I believe his name is Scott Shepard. Shepard. Mm -hmm. Scott Shepard, who was pretty high up in the KKK. And you, you guys were sitting at a bar hanging out, white guy, right? And, mm -hmm. and you were sitting there talking. And he was saying to the camera quite vulnerably, he said, you know, the racism, racism was never, never the, the problem. It wasn't the cause. He said, racism was never the cause. He said, the cause, the root of the problem was that I hated myself because I had a difficult relationship with my father. He beat me. He was an alcoholic. And he said, just very matter of factly, he said, when I learned to accept myself, when I learned to love myself and forgive my father, then the racism vanished. The racism disappeared. My question for you is, what role does self-hatred play in racism, projected anger? And what role can self-acceptance play in dissolving racism? Yes, um, good points. You know, there, I, I've seen a lot of uh, 
dysfunctional families uh, that have that have uh, created racists, if you will. Um, you know, people want to be loved. They want to be accepted. They want to be heard. And, you know, if they're not getting that from their biological family, they seek it out elsewhere. And oftentimes a gang, uh, the clan is a gang, so to speak, uh, will offer them that. You know, we're your family. You take a blood oath, come join us. I mean, we got your back. You know, we provide you anything and everything you need. We'll even give you a title, exalted so-and-so, grand this, imperial that. You know, these are titles, you know, within the organization. It makes you feel important. And now you're getting what you didn't get from back there. Um, you know, your family made you feel less than, a, than human. And so these people are now making you feel human. But in order to stay human, you, you know, you, you, in order to be on the top, you have to have somebody on the, on the bottom. You know, there is no top unless there's a bottom. So if you're at the top, you, you have to define what's on the bottom. And what's on the bottom is someone who does not look like you who does not think like you, who does not believe as you believe, who does not speak your language or worship your God, you know, or whatever else. So uh, in the case of the Klan, it was the blacks, the Jews, you know, and all that kind of thing. So dysfunction does play a role, but, you know, that's, you know, not every Klansman or Klanswoman comes from a dysfunctional background like, uh, like my good friend Scott Shepard. Um, you know, Scott did come from that background and fortunately he got out of it. But uh, some of them come from perfectly normal backgrounds, you know, where there is no dysfunction. You know, they're loved, but, you know, they, they got caught up in the wrong thing, got caught up with the wrong environment or people, read the wrong book, went down a certain rabbit hole and came out that way. But uh, oftentimes there is dysfunction. In the cases where there is dysfunction, are you saying that essentially someone's inability to experience love or to feel loved then leads to them acting out in a form that manifests as racism. Uh, yes, I am saying that because, you know, self-hatred, uh, you know, you, you, you learn to hate yourself because the people who are supposed to love you the most, you know, right off the bat, it's your family. You know, they gave birth to you. They raised you. They should be your primary love. And, and, and you're not getting it from them. You know, they're putting you down. You'll never amount to anything. You're worthless. They beat you for no reason. Maybe the father, you know, lost his job, got mad, came home, slapped the wife around, kicked the kids. You know, we hear those stories all the time. What is a kid to think? You know, his self-esteem or her self-esteem goes down. And, um, and so now in order to, to bring it back up, you have to have somebody below you. And so you take right. it out. On, on the you know take it on on your little brother perhaps right. you know or, or 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 the little kid down the street or you know what these people who are not worth anything those black people those Jewish people you know they you know they they, they control everything you know they control the media they control this they control that you know and they're, and they're taking everything away from us so it becomes that us versus them mentality so that's where it originates. What do you think Scott Shepard meant when he said that in the documentary? Was there anything else that you think he meant by it? I think it was very key for him to say that because I'll tell you what, so many people have related to that. I get emails from people I don't even know who were in the Klan or in white supremacy and tell me, you know, they saw the documentary and they want to talk to me. You know, they want to, they want to walk away. I've even gotten robes and hoods in the mail 
what? in the mail. Yeah, people have emailed me their stuff. It's, you know, they, they've changed. You know, they, they, they find something they can relate to because they don't think anybody will talk to them about it. They, they think it's, it's unique to themselves. Can't talk about it. Right. Yeah. You know, so they don't realize how many other people out there are going through the same thing. It's like, wow, you know, this guy gets it. I thought I was the only one, you know, that kind of thing. And you know, it opens them up, which is a great thing. It's so clear. It's like it's that lack of self-worth, which then leads to somebody feeling, well, I don't have enough self-esteem, but if I push this other person down, then I'll feel better about myself. But actually, you're not developing authentic self-esteem. You're just developing anger, which is the delusion. And your self-esteem is, is probably going even lower. And you're, you're looking at somebody that you perceive to be lower than you. Right. It's clear to me. I, I'm I'm amazed that you can be in a situation with people where they're yelling racist slurs at you or saying things that are so preposterous, but you don't take it personally. That's an amazing thing, right? It's one of the four agreements not to take anything personally. And, you know, I mean, sometimes somebody says, oh, you know, I don't like the way your hair looks. We could like take it personally. But somebody saying something about your skin color, about something that's inherently part of who you are, you're not taking it personally as as an offense how do you not take it personally where does okay. your authentic self-esteem come from great question let me let me walk you through it all right number one you have to know who you are you have to know you have to have your self-esteem in check i'm not saying you know be an egomaniac or something like that but know who you are and also understand this phrase hurt people hurt people the first hurt is, a, is an adjective. The second is a verb. People who are hurt will hurt other people. Hurt people hurt people. Um, so that's why you don't want to take it personally. Realize this person is going through probably a hell of a lot more than you're going through. And that's why he or she may be taking it out on you for no apparent reason. They're hurt and they're trying to make themselves feel better. And that's the only way they know. Uh, it's not a real feel better, but it is in the moment for them, you know, when, when they can cause somebody else to be hurt. Uh, we've all heard the term that's older than, than you and I, and, and even older than our grandparents, misery loves company. Misery loves company. And I'll, I'll give you a real example of, of something like that. Then we'll get back to the clan thing. If, when I say you, I'm just being collectively. If you're going down the highway and you're speeding, you know, you're doing, you know, 80 miles an hour in a, uh, you know, 55 mile an hour zone and you're going up this hill you and you fly over this hill, right? And um, as soon as you crest that hill, there's a cop sitting at the bottom of the hill in the median with his radar gun. And he, he sees you coming, he's like this. Pull over, you know, and you pull over and he asks for your license registration and he comes back with a ticket and it's going to cost you $150, you know, at that point, you know, 80 and 55, that's like, you know, reckless driving. So now you got points in your license, your insurance is going to go up and you've been separated from your money, $150 worth. You're not a happy camper. You are not happy. And then, and then to add insult to injury, after he rips off the ticket and hands it to you, he says, have a nice day, slow down, <laughs> or something like that. Well, he's just ruined your day. And when, you know, when actually you ruined your own day 
by by not minding the speed limit, you know. But now, let's say you're doing 80 miles an hour, and as you're coming up the hill before you crest it, somebody in the oncoming traffic comes over the hill and starts flashing its headlights, the high beams, on and off, on and off. You know, that's a signal to you that there's something going on on the other side of that hill. It may be construction, it may be an accident, it may be a cop with radar. In other words, you know, if you're speeding, slow down. You know, they don't know what speed you're doing, but they're letting you know something is going on over there, probably a cop. Right. So you hit your brakes and you crest over the hill and now you're back to the speed limit. You're like, whoo, man, I could have got myself a <laughs> ticket. You know, and, and you're grateful for that person who you don't even know. You probably never meet in life who flashed those lights at you. They just saved you $150. So now as you continue past the cop in the median who doesn't pull out after you, you began flashing your lights at the oncoming traffic to, to warn them, hey, you know, if you're speeding, slow down, you know, there's a cop up ahead. And so now you're doing them a favor. And so happiness promotes happiness. But if you had crested that hill at 80 miles an hour because nobody flashed you and warned you, when the cop gives you a ticket, are you going to flash everybody else after, after you get that ticket? Probably not. You're like him. You know, I got a ticket. I'm not going to worry about anybody else. You know, let them get their own ticket. You know, that, that tends to be a human attitude, you know, which is wrong, which is wrong. So I like to promote, you know, happiness. And here's what you do. Don't let your emotions get in front of you and ruin your day and ruin, you know, how productive you can be and bring your own self-esteem down. So when I walk into, a, I mean, when, I, when I'm in a room, and a Klansman comes in to be interviewed by me, and he doesn't know that I'm black or whatever. As soon as he sees me, that wall goes right up. That wall goes up, and he's ready to attack. He's, he's ready for vitriol. I am not the object of his affection. That's why he's in the Klan, right? Because I'm black. He doesn't like black people. All right, so when I ask him things like, how can you hate me, man? You know, you don't even know me. All you, know, all you see is this. Well, Mr. Davis, uh, there are more blacks in prison than, than white people. You know, black people are prone to crime. You know, you all are criminals. And I'm sitting there listening to this guy calling me a criminal. But you know, he's sitting two feet in front of me. And what he is saying to me is true. Uh, there are more blacks in prison than white people. But what he's, but I also know that what he is saying is a half-truth. The reason why there are more blacks in prison than white people is because of the imbalance in our, in our criminal uh, judicial system that puts black people in prison where, uh, for longer sentences than it gives white people. So we know that, but he doesn't, he doesn't know that. He, he's looking at what he sees. He sees more blacks in prison than white people. So that's his perspective. One's perspective is one's reality. All right. So therefore, there must be more black criminals. All right. So I'm, I keep listening. He goes on to tell me that um, black people are inherently lazy. We do not want to work. We prefer to scam the government welfare system. We always have our hand out for a freebie or something like that. So now I'm being called lazy. I'm just sitting there listening to this guy. I'm showing him some of those five things. I'm respecting him. I'm allowing him to be heard. I'm treating him fairly. Now back to the respect thing, very important. I am not respecting what he is saying. 
but I am respecting his right to say it. That's the difference. A lot of people, you know, want to be heard, but, you know, but they don't want you telling them anything. You know, we have to, you know, if you want to be, if I want to say something to him, then I have to allow him to say whatever he's going to say. So I'm giving him that respect, allowing him to be heard. I don't agree with what he's saying. I'm just respecting his right to say it. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I'm showing him those, those courtesies. Now, he's never had that happen because normally when he is radiating that vitriol about Jews or about blacks, he's offending those people he's talking to. And within 30 to 45 seconds, they're going to be verbally pushing back. And it could even escalate into physical confrontation. And I've seen that too. All right. So I'm not, I'm not attacking back. Not because I'm buying it. I'm just giving him those, you know, those attributes. So now the wall is coming down. I've thrown him off his game. You know, he's not having to attack me and 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 push my buttons and and retaliate. I'm letting him say what he's got to say. He's not used to that because usually people cut him off and interrupt him and all that kind of stuff when they feel insulted or hurt, right? and it just becomes a melee. So I'm just sitting back listening to the guy. So the wall is coming down. If I want any of my points to, to, to sink in with him, I cannot put them forward when the wall is up. Because what happens is they hit the wall and bounce off. Right. When, when this wall is up, his ears are plugged. All right. I need the wall to come down so my points traverse the wall and land in his in his ground. I plant the seed in his ground when the wall is down. So so then he tells me. That, uh, that black people, and I've heard this many times from many different Hispanic people, black people are born with a smaller brain than white people. And the, the larger the brain, the more capacity for intelligence. The smaller the brain, the lower the IQ. Right. So now I'm sitting here, you know, being told that I'm dumb. So, you know, okay, I'm, I'm still listening. So now he has exhausted all his vitriol and he feels compelled to reciprocate and allow me to say, you know, I haven't pushed back at all. So now he's curious, like, why? You know, what do you have to say to you? You you believe me? And so now it's my turn to talk. I could go on the attack. I could go on the offense. And I would be well within my right to do so. I could say, no, you are the criminal. You are the one hanging black men from trees and bombing black churches and dragging black people behind pickup trucks. And I would be 100% correct because the Klan has a 155-year history of doing that. All right. But I'm not going to attack him like that, because if I start doing that, the wall goes back up and he's like this. And, you know, I might, I might as well be talking to a brick wall. So I, I want to keep the wall down rather than go on the direct offense. I go on a subtle offense by by going on the defense. And I say, listen, I hear what you're saying. However, I'm black. I don't have a criminal record. My mom and dad don't have criminal records. Uh, I've never been on welfare. Neither have my parents. And as far as my brain size goes, I have never measured my brain size, but I think it's probably the same size as anybody else's. And he had told me that um, that you know the brain size thing was was uh, was evidenced by the fact that uh, black students consistently, year after year, uh, score lower on the SATs than white kids. And again, this is very true. Black kids do do consistently score lower on the SATs as a whole than white kids in our country. But he's not considering the reason why. The reason why is, where do most black kids go to school in this country? 
in the inner city, where the most white kids go to school, in the suburbs. And uh, I can tell you something, black kids who go to school in the suburbs score just as high, if not higher, than some of the white kids in the suburbs. White kids who go to school in the inner city score just as low, if not lower, than some of the black kids. It has absolutely nothing to do with the color of one's skin or the size of one's brain, but it has everything to do with the quality of the education system in that in, in, a, in a particular environment. So, you know, he doesn't see that. All he sees are the SAT scores. So one's perspective is one's reality. Black kids score lower, therefore they're less intelligent. Simple as that. All right, so um, I tell him, I said, listen, you know, I, you know, I've never measured my brain size, but as far as, as SAT scores go, my SATs were good enough to get me into college. I have a bachelor's degree. My, both my mom and dad had master's degrees. My dad was working on his PhD before he passed away. Now, I know the person sitting in front of me barely made it out of high school. I know that I have more intelligence in my little fingernail than he and his whole clan group put together. But I'm not going to throw that in his face because if I did, that wall would go right back up. So I want to keep it down. So I'm just talking about myself. And I know for a fact that I've been doing this now for almost 37 years. And, and I, I keep getting told the same story by different people. They go home, and when they reflect upon the day and what transpired, they're like, man, I just had a three-hour conversation with a black guy. And we didn't, you know, we didn't come to blows. And I mean, we got a little loud, but you know, we didn't come to blows. And, and what Daryl said about such and such, it makes sense. Oh, but he's black. But what he said was true, but he's black. So they're having a cognitive dissonance. How, do this, how does this black man know the truth and I didn't know it? Now they've discovered something I said was true and they didn't know it. And they're supposed to be superior to me. I'm inferior. After all, that's what makes them a supremacist. They are supreme. So, you know, they, they know it's true, but they don't want to accept the truth came from a black person because that's a no-no. You know, that, that, you know that's, that's, what, that's their nemesis. So they have this cognitive dissonance and it becomes a dilemma which, with uh, which they struggle. And they have to decide, do I disregard Daryl's skin color and believe what he said to be true because I know it's true? And then I have to change my direction and renounce this ideology? Or do I consider his skin color, he's black, and know what he said was true but continue living a lie? That's a struggle for some of them. And fortunately for me, the majority of them have chosen the truth and have gone that way. But there will always be those who, you know, will go to their grave being hateful, violent, and racist because they just don't want to accept, you know, that uh, there is somebody who is their equal who does not look like them. Daryl, that's, that's sort of that golden nugget that I'm hearing from you is the philosophy by which you approach your conversations with people. You've said this multiple times. One's perspective is one's reality. reality. Right. Yes, yes. So you're not going into a relationship. And what I hear from you applies to intimate relationships. It applies to friendships. It applies to talking to members of white supremacist groups. It applies to all relationships. Right. You're not going into the conversation saying you're wrong. This is what I think. This is what I know to be true. And this is why I know you're wrong. Because then you have that wall. What you're saying is bouncing up against the wall. It's not going anywhere. Right. Instead, you sort of you allow the person to share their experience. You share your experience, right? Which they can't argue with because it's, it's right. our experience. 
we share our experience and then the seeds are planted and it's up to them. It's kind of like inception, right? Then they're, they, they change their own mind. That idea that seed is planted, you're sharing your experience, which is your truth. The seed is planted and their own mind changes because it's that, it's that dissonance that we first talked about in the beginning. Like when you're playing music with Chuck Berry or with Bob Weir, when you insert a note that you mean to insert, to create dissonance, right? To create a certain feeling. So can you just really simply just walk us through that process of, walk us through that process. What is the process of having somebody's idea shift? Not as a result of convincing, but right. as a result of Well, because, okay, like, you know, like we pointed out, one's perspective is one's reality. So we spend a lot of time trying to change someone's reality just by the examples you just gave, telling them, you know, I know this for a fact, you're definitely wrong, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's just, you know, driving into a brick wall. Uh, You cannot change anyone's reality. What you can do is, so so don't even go after the reality. What you can do is offer somebody different or alternative perspectives. And when they view those perspectives, and, 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 and one, you know, clicks with them, they change their own reality. That's how you do it. It's, it's a little counterintuitive, but that's how you do it, you know? And as far as esteem goes, you know, learn as much, and again, it doesn't have to be about race, it can be about anything. Learn as much as you can about your opposition's position. Try as best you can to put yourself in the shoes of your of your opposition. Try to understand their position, how they arrived at that conclusion. All right, that 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 educates you as to how you can frame, you know, your perspective, and um, always have your self esteem in check. You know, don't you know, don't be egotistical. Have an open mind. You know, be receptive to new ideas and new exposure, but know who you are. Always know who you are going into a situation with an adversary. Because if you don't know who you are, uh, they will tell you who you are. And depending upon how, uh, you know, where your self-esteem is, you might believe them when you walk out of there, you know? So, you know, you got, you got to have, you know, ha- have your self-esteem in check. But uh, I'm, I'm going to give you an example of a really crazy conversion. You know, you asked me, you know, what was an, an aha yeah. moment. All right, so this Klansman, he was an exalted cyclops which means district leader, all right? Okay, let me just run down the hierarchy. Uh, Imperial wizard is the highest, and he oversees all the the, uh, chapters of his clan um, in every state in which he has a chapter. So we would call that person, in our our terminology, a president, all right? Uh, Anybody who is prefixed with the word imperial means um, they are a national officer, wizard being the highest, like president. Imperial claylist would be like a vice president. Okay, so then, and you have secretaries and treasurers on down. Uh, the state leader is known as a grand dragon. Anybody grand is on the state level. Dragon being the highest. We would call a grand dragon a governor. Uh, a grand claylist would be like a lieutenant governor. And uh, within the state, you have counties. Uh, we call the county leader, the county manager, the county executive, etc. Uh, they call that person the great titan. Anybody on the great level is county level, um, titan being the highest. Within the county, you have districts, which, which they call claverns. And uh, we would call a clavern leader a councilman, an alderman, a selectman, uh, something like that, a mayor. 
they call that person an exalted cyclops. And below the uh, cyclops is just rank and file, plain white robe clansmen. So robes have different colors on them that designate their rank. So anyway, this uh, exalted cyclops was in my passenger seat and we're driving down, down the road and we're talking about crime and stuff. And he mentioned that uh, all black people have a gene within us that makes us violent. And that's the problem with black people. And I asked him to explain that. And he says, well, look, who's doing all the drive-bys and carjackings in Southeast? He was referring to Southeast Washington, D.C., which is predominantly black. There's some whites who live there, but predominantly black and very high crime-ridden. I said, okay. I said, it's black people. I said, but, you know, that's what lives there. Who's doing all, all the crime in Bangor, Maine? White people, because that's what lives there. I said, you know, you're not even considering the demographics. He's like, oh, no, 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 man. You know, demographics have nothing to do with it. You all got that gene. I said, I'm just looking at him. And I said, look, man, I'm as black as anybody you've ever seen. I have never done a carjacking or a drive-by. How do you explain that? This man did not even think about it. He answered me like that. He said, your gene is latent. It hasn't come out yet. Now, how do you argue with somebody who is that far out in the left field? I couldn't even bite into the tail of that and chew on it. It was so far out. What do you think? I didn't know what to think. I, I, I'm just driving dumbfound, like, what? You know, he's over here all smug, like, huh, you see? You got nothing to say. You know, he, he had me. So I thought about it as I'm driving along. And he's all secure and smug. And I said, you know what? All white people have a gene within them that makes them a serial killer. And he says, how do you figure that? I said, well, look, name me three black serial killers. He couldn't do it. I named one for him. I said, here, I'm going to give you one. And I named one. I said, just give me two. He couldn't do it. I said, Charles Manson, Jeffrey Dahmer, Henry Lee Lucas, John Wayne Gacy, Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, Son of Sam, Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler, on and on. I said, they're all white. I said, son, you are a serial killer. He said, Daryl, I never killed anybody. I said, your gene is latent, hasn't come out yet. And he goes, well, that's dumb. I said, well, duh. I said, yeah. I said, it is dumb for me to say that about you. But it's no more dumb for me to say that about you than what you said about me. And he got very, very quiet. And he didn't talk. I could tell his brain was spinning around 90 miles an hour. And then you know, after a moment when he finally talked, he changed the subject. But five months later, this man quit the Ku Klux Klan based on that conversation and his insulted Cyclops robe was the first robe I ever got. Do you have it nearby? I don't have it nearby, but I, I do have it, yeah. It's in your, are they in your house, all the robes? Not all the robes in my house. I have some of the robes in my house, but I keep the bulk of them locked up on a secure location. And there's how many at this point? I think they're between 54 and 57. Wow. But I've got tons of other stuff. I got clan flags, clan this, clan that, applications, him and you name it. I've got Carol, it. Do we have time for two quick questions? Sure. So the first one's a quick one, which is, uh, well, one quick, one a little less quick. The quick one is, what do you do if you're in a public gathering, if you're in a public situation and somebody starts 
speaking in racist terms. Let's say you're with a group of four or five people, and one of the people starts saying something that's clearly racist, mm-hmm. not even directly at you, right. just in general. What do you do in that situation? I think a lot of us, we get uncomfortable, right? What do you do? Do you tell, do you confront the person right there in front of everyone? Do I do. Do you tell them that they're wrong? Do you tell them that they're racist? How do you engage with somebody well, I, I first without asked, their guard coming up? Yeah, I, I first ask them, why, why do they refer to that, to, to, to this in these terms? You know, why, why are you saying this about this person or about so-and-so? Uh, and I, I want an explanation. And then uh, I try to explain to them, you know, you know, if you have an issue with that particular person, why insult their whole uh, race? Why not, why not just, you know, uh, uh, direct your grudge towards an individual? Right. You know, rather than paint the whole race. Uh, and, and if it's a black thing, you know, I say, hey, you know, you're affecting me too. You know, why are you even here out, out here with me, you know, if, if you have this kind of disdain for somebody who looks like me? You know, yeah, but, but you're okay. No, I'm not okay. You just hurt me. I'm hurt, so I'm not okay. So I, I, need, I need to understand why you feel you have the right to, to say this about this person. I said, I said you know, there have been white people who have done you wrong too. I said, I said you know, you, you cannot say every white person that you know in this world has always treated you 100%. You know, and then usually, you know, you know they'll, they'll come around, they'll, they'll see the analogy. I'm not attacking them as a person. I'm attacking their usage of how they, they responded, how they retaliated. You direct it towards the individual, yes. Don't direct yeah. it towards a race of people. Because, I mean, I'll tell you, I, 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 I give this example sometimes when, you know, when I'm speaking. If, if I'm walking, you know, this, this is how it used to be with, with most people. Uh, and I just put, throw myself in here. Let's say I'm walking down the street and I'm representing most people. Um, I'm a black guy. And up ahead of me on the sidewalk, there's a black guy and a white guy. And and they're arguing. I don't know either one of them, but they're going at it verbally with, you know, with each other, calling each other names, you know, idiot, you know, this, that, and the other, stupid. Um, so the white guy, as, as I pass by them on my way to wherever it is I'm going, the uh, the white guy calls the uh, the black guy stupid. Now I don't know this black guy. I don't know this white guy. For all I know, the black guy may may be stupid. But I'm not going to get involved in this. It's not my 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 place, really. So I just keep on going. But now, as soon as I pass them, I hear the white guy call the black guy the N word. Whoa! I'm going to turn around and come back because now he's he's involved me. You know, that, that, that word does not apply to just one person. It applies to a whole group of people uh, into which I, I am a member of that group. So now you, you're having trouble with this guy, but you're going to insult me? And you don't even know me. I'm just somebody walking down the sidewalk. So I'm going to come back and say, hey, man, you know, what's going on here? You know, this guy may, may have wronged you. He may, he, he may have done wrong or whatever. But why are you going to insult me? So I want to point that out. All right. Now, that's what I would do. Um, and, and back in the day, people would like, so, okay, now let's say I'm a black guy. I'm walking down the street and some black guy and some Jewish guy are going at it up ahead on the sidewalk. And I don't know either of them. And um, the black guy calls the Jewish guy, you know, uh, some, the K word or whatever. And uh, now I'm not Jewish. So should I just keep on going down the sidewalk and not involve myself? 
You know, I mean, the black guy is probably wrong for calling him that, but you know, I'm not Jewish. I shouldn't you know, even get involved. I don't know what, what, what that's all about. I just mind my own business and keep on going because I didn't get insulted. That's how people thought. I think I should come back and defend that Jewish guy. The Jewish guy may be wrong, whatever he did to that black guy, but the black guy had no business calling him that name because it does not go directly to that individual. It paints his whole religion. Right. You know? And so I should come back and stand up for that Jewish person, not for what he did, right. but for the insult that he had to endure. And and we need we need to, to to not only stand up for our own and ourselves, we need to stand up for others and everybody else. You know, I went and spoke at the women's march for two years. And be, not because I'm a woman, obviously, but because I want to defend them. It it takes the collective voice to change things. We cannot only just defend ourselves and those who look like us. Let's defend those others who may not have uh, a voice. That is what is going to eradicate uh, discrimination, the collective voice. We all are in this together. As somebody said many, many years ago, um, we we all may have come over here on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. Wow. So, so powerful, Daryl. So so powerful, yeah. It's standing up for, standing up for others, even when we we may not be personally involved, but we are involved because we're all members of the same race, which is the human race. And exactly. And and let me show you the the effectiveness of that. Let's take a look at, you know, the the civil rights movement of yesteryear, and 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 today. Uh, you know, we've turned some pages over the years. If you want to go back to the to the beginning of the civil rights movement, usually it's, it's attributed to 1955 with uh, with the Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King bus boycott um, as the beginning of the civil rights movement, and then it, it progressed on through the 1960s with Dr. King and his marches and his sit-ins and boycotts and protests, etc. We have always had um, a smattering, if you will, of white people who have participated with us in those boycotts, sit-ins, and demonstrations, and and marches, et cetera. Um, And we've turned some pages. But today, we see a whole sea of white people joining us in the streets in the wake of George Floyd. And as, you know, in the past, the powers that be, and the powers that be is just a, a, a polite way of saying the white establishment, the powers that be in, in, of yesteryear would look at our protests and they see a whole big sea of, of black people with maybe a few whites spread in there, and they're like this. You know, they didn't want to hear what you know, hear, you know that we wanted equality, we wanted the right to vote. You know, we wanted to be treated equally and 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 and, and get equal justice. They shut us down. Today, the powers that be are seeing a whole sea of people who look like them. Right. So now they're pulling out their earplugs or else putting in their hearing aids and they're listening. And as a result of that collective voice, the blacks and whites marching together on the street, we are seeing more and more changes occurring a lot more rapidly than yesteryear. Look, these protests in the wake of George Floyd's lynching, they were predominantly directed towards who? the police. And 
but there's been a ripple effect that we never expected. A large ripple effect that, that, that we've never even seen before. For example, as a result, NASCAR banning the Confederate flag. NASCAR, which was ground zero for the Confederate flag. The state of Mississippi, of all places, taking the Confederate portion out of their state flag. Um, Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben's uh, food uh, products changing their, their branding. Uh, legislation, state legislation to, uh, to remove these Confederate statues or, or change names on buildings of, uh, that were named after slave owners. All of this is happening, boom, boom, boom. You know, in the past, when, when a cop killed a black person, if, a small, small word with big meaning, if, that cop were to be charged, it would take months and months and months. And then probably he would not be, be convicted if he was charged. Today, cops are getting charged with, within a few days for, for, for nonsense like, you know, like, like, like what that Derek Chauvin did. All right. And so what is the difference between <clears throat> the marches of yesteryear and the, and the marches of this year? the collective voice, the whites and blacks working together. Working together, in harmony. Okay. In harmony, exactly. Harmony is the key word, all right? That's why it's necessary for me to come back and defend uh, that Jewish person against being insulted that way. I'm not defending whatever he may have done or didn't do, but I'm, I'm defending his right to be Jewish. Daryl, this brings me to a, a deep question, but I'd, I'd love to hear just your sort of gold nugget the question is, what role does karma play in racism? I'm reminded of a wonderful Tibetan story of a, a small group of people in, in a fishing village. And if we entertain the idea of future lives for a moment, in one lifetime, the there were fishermen and then there were fish and they would kill the fish and eat the fish, right? And then the next lifetime, the fishermen would be born as the fish and the fish would take rebirth as the fisherman. And this would go on, this goes on forever and ever and ever in a cyclic form of existence. Is there any correlation, maybe not necessarily in terms of future lives, if we if we even drop that idea, have you seen karma play a role in terms of racism and dissolving it in our country and throughout the world? Yes, I I, I have seen it. Uh has everybody else seen it is the question. But yes, I I, I have seen it. You know, when, when you promote negativity, Negativity will come back and bite you, bite you in the rear end. You know, uh, it may not come from the person uh, that you that you perpetrated your your hate on or whatever, but it will come back and get you at some point. You know, uh, you know, you think you're living, you know, free and high and and, and all hunky dory. You prove something to somebody, you put somebody down. Uh, it will it will come back and get you, and it, it may not be the next day, it may not be the next year, but eventually it's going to come back. And yes, karma is very powerful. Karma is a force of nature. And, you know, you, you cannot uh, overpower nature. You know, you can't get out there and try to fight Hurricane Katrina by yourself, okay. you know, or, or, or any, or, you know, or tsunami or whatever. Nature, you know, nature is, is, is God's messenger. And so is karma. Wow. Uh, Daryl, I'm going to close with one last question, if that's okay. Do you mm -hmm. have time? Sure. This is my, so this is my last question. It's sort of words of advice for us as we go about our day, as we go about our lives, interacting with people from different backgrounds. 
And the people that I've talked to, especially during my lectures and people that I speak with after my lectures, I'm generally speaking around diversity and inclusion. And I relate to so much of your story growing up in Brooklyn on a stoop with people from 13 nationalities. I just assumed everyone grew up with people from all around the world on their stoop. I figured it was like that on every block, but I just happened to be born in a place where this was the case. Now, our interactions weren't always peaceful. You know, we definitely made fun of each other. We didn't get along. We made fun of each other for all sorts of things, but we stayed on that stoop until we worked out the solution to the problem at hand. I experience people that are, uh, in my experience, people are quite nervous about saying the wrong thing when interacting with somebody else. And what I love about your work is that it's, it's, it's really easy, to be honest. It's simple. Maybe it's not easy, but it's simple. It's brave and it's simple. Approach people with an open mindset and open dialogue. What's one parting sentence of wisdom you can leave everyone with? Okay, is this. Always, your your greatest asset, no matter what you do, your greatest asset is your credibility. And in order to forge a relationship with someone, you must be transparent and credible. Um, You only have one opportunity, one opportunity in your life to make a good first impression with someone. You may have a second or third opportunity if you're lucky to make an impression, but only one opportunity to make a good first impression. And most people will judge you on the, on their first impression of you. So even though uh, these people do not like me, you know, when I, when I initially meet them, that, that's why they're in this organization, right? The clan or whatever. Uh, if they find me to be credible, they will be willing to meet with me again. So even though they may not like me, and, you know, uh, and they find me to be credible, and honest, and transparent. And I say, hey, listen, you know, I want to process everything that you've given me. Thank you for your time. Um, would it be okay if we got together again in two weeks? I just want to follow up after I process everything. They'll be like, yeah, okay. But if they did not like me because I did something that was not credible or wasn't transparent and they got a bad first impression of me, and I said, hey, you know, can, you know, can we get together again in two weeks? They're like, no, you know, we're done. I mean, it's just like, you know, if, if, if you want to, go out on a, on a date with somebody and, and you take this girl out. And uh, if, you, if you're not credible on that first date, don't ask her out a second time. She's, she's going to turn you down, you know? Or just like, you know, if, if, if she wasn't credible with you, you're not going to ask her out again. You, you know, you're done. You move on to somebody else. So your credibility is your most valuable asset. Protect it and always be transparent always strive to make a good first impression because that will guarantee you a, a revisit. And so in order to effect this change and be the impetus for change, the first, my, my, my first encounter, I plant the seed. So I want to come back and be able to water. Daryl, I'm so, so thankful that you took the time to be here with me today, to be here now together with us and everyone listening in. Daryl, thank you so much for being here. How can people uh, connect with you? How can they see your work? How can they find out more? Well, uh, daryldavis.com, D-A-R-Y-L, only one R, daryldavis.com, and at, uh, at Real Daryl Davis on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And that's, you just you know, Google me, <laughs> say hello, email me. Daryl, thank you so much for being here on the Be Here Now Network. We're so grateful. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Take care.
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now.